Hello, Green Rush Nation. Producer Shake Gunther here with a quick programming note. We have a great substitute episode this week with a recent Marijuana Today show featuring a super good and in-depth discussion of unionization in legal cannabis. You do not want to miss this one. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 406 of Marijuana Today. I'm this week's host, Heather Sullivan. I am an advocate, a chronic cannabis consumer, and I work in the legal and compliance side of the industry for Cureleaf, one of the large multi-state operators in the space. However, the opinions I share on this podcast do not reflect Cureleaf's management or corporate perspective. These opinions are mine and mine alone. First and foremost, I just want to thank you all for listening. There are a ton of places to get your cannabis news these days, and it means a lot to our team here that you take the time to let us share that news and our opinions with you. Well, listeners, was there any other news last week besides Twitter's decision to accept Elon Musk's offer to buy and privatize the app? Of course there was. This is cannabis. There's always some news, right? (laughs) And we're going to talk about all that and more with two of the brightest people in the industry and the movement. Our first guest is former executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. She has turned her attention to all things psychedelic as the director of communications and events at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. She's my advocacy hero, the OG radical incrementalist, Betty Aldworth. Thank you for being here today, Betty. Thanks so much, Heather, and apologies to everyone. We've got some nearby construction, so if it's loud back here, that's why. Thanks for your patience. Hey, it's that time of year, I think. Our second guest is also a regular on the show. He is coming off his hugely successful first time in the host seat. We've got the insider's edge today with senior reporter for Business Insider, Jeremy Burke. Jeremy is a finance reporter. He's really focused on the intersection of Wall Street and the emerging cannabis sector. And with with more than just a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit, Jeremy actually pitched and founded the Cannabis Reporting Vertical at Business Insider. Way to go, Jeremy. He also publishes a weekly newsletter on cannabis business and policy for about 20,000 subscribers. Hey, Jeremy, how are you? I'm good, Heather. It's good to be back here. And I love how we've flipped around the hosting and guest chair already. So I'm it's looking fun. <laughs> it's fun. You know, at the end of the show, I'm going to make you say, what do you prefer, being a host or a guest? <laughs> I've got some thoughts. So yeah, I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it for the end. <laughs> Very cool. Well, let's jump right in then. <clears throat> Last Tuesday, during a Senate Appropriations Budget Subcommittee hearing, Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked whether he intended to reissue the Obama-era coal memo guidance, which encourages discretion by federal prosecutors in legal cannabis states. Attorney General Garland avoided a direct answer to the question and instead simply stated that marijuana prosecutions are, quote, 
not an efficient use of the resources given the opioid and methamphetamine epidemic that we have. Also on Tuesday, President Biden announced that he is granting clemency to a whopping 78 people. Biden commuted the sentences of 75 individuals, all of which were previously released to home confinement during the coronavirus pandemic. He also issued three pardons. Now, only eight of the 75 were people with marijuana-related convictions, and one of the pardons was related to a nonviolent marijuana offense. Now, before we get too excited about this, I think it's important to put some of this in perspective. Commutations aren't effective until either August of this year or April of next year. So these folks are still technically, while not incarcerated, physically in, a, uh, in one of our finer jails that we have in this country, they are still um, subject to home confinement for at least another four or five months to a full year. Now, Eric Altieri, Executive Director of Normal said in a statement, and this is a quote, while granting clemency to nine individuals for federal, federal marijuana offenses is the right thing to do, it is woefully inadequate when there remain over 10,000 individuals who still suffer under the weight of a federal charge on their criminal record. Now, the president said uh, during his announcement that many of the people he is granting relief to would have received a lower sentence if they were charged with the same offense today. I mean, arguably they would have, many of them maybe would have had no sentence. There would have been no charges, um, particularly when you take into consideration the marijuana uh, convictions. <clears throat> so his statement is technically accurate. And of course, I'm pleased that the president has inched his way towards fulfilling campaign promises made almost two years ago. However, I do believe that these are just kind of baby steps in correcting the harms that Biden himself was responsible for inflicting with his stance on the war on drugs as the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee in the 80s and early 90s. Um, I think it's important that we remember he did not just support the war on drugs and mass incarceration. He actually wrote those laws that helped to build this punitive criminal justice system that we were, are looking at today. So Jeremy, I'm curious your perspective um, as someone in the media. Was this announcement something that anyone other than the 78 family, families and criminal justice reform advocates like myself even care about? Did this get any play out there in the general public? So I will give you a long answer and a short answer, right? Um, I think the long answer is yes, it did get play in the general public because we haven't seen the Biden administration do much of anything around cannabis or any sort of drug policy yet, right? There was a lot of talk in the campaign about them deschedulizing, specifically the Vice President Kamala Harris. That has not happened yet. So these clemency actions, there's only 78 people. Um, there's many more people locked up for non-valid drug offenses in the US, so keep that in perspective. But it was the first time that we did see the Biden administration show at least some sort of easing of their sort of hardline cannabis policies. And when you couple that with the attorney general's position, I mean, maybe we are seeing the beginning of a shift or at least the beginning of looking into filling some of these campaign promises. I think, you know, the short answer 
Um, and it's unfortunate when you get a little more granular. I mean, I, I don't think it means much, right? Um, I think while the media might have jumped on this, that that you know they are offering clemency. I think you know um, to not go against what I just said, but reading too much into these clemency actions, like we have descheduling coming in the pipeline, I don't think you can really do that. I don't think we should do that. Um, but that being said, you know, getting seventy people out of jail, um, or at least I think they came out of home arrest because of COVID, but getting 78 people out of that situation is nothing but a good thing. So um, the long answer is it's good. The short answer is that, you know, I don't think we should read too much into this. It's, there's a long way between clemency for a few people um, convicted under marijuana offenses to full scale, you know, executive branch led changes. Yeah, I have to, I have to absolutely agree with you on that. So Betty, while I would not consider the president's actions to be radical by any means, can we consider this at least an incremental step in the right direction on Biden's part? Or am I just really looking for a shiny penny amongst the dirt here? I mean, the most incremental of incremental, for sure, perhaps. Um, this is a... Um, long overdue and really easy win for Biden's presidency to start activating some of these clemency positions and, and um, you know, particularly in the face of the pandemic and the conditions in jails and prisons across the U.S. Um, I, I think that we would all be well served with a much more aggressive approach um, to clemency for um drug offenses and all sorts of other things. But, you know, listen, I'm a prison abolitionist. At the end of the day, what I want to see is every prison closed. And I'm not going to be happy until that that's done. But that being said, you know, I I do think that the um, whatever hopes we might have had for really aggressive moves um, from a potential Biden administration prior to the election, um, have to be tempered with an understanding of the greater context of the pandemic and everything that, you know, the, the public health and, and economic emergencies that we've been dealing with. So nothing about this, unfortunately, is surprising. I can't wait for the day when I'm pleasantly surprised by clemency action from the Biden administration. I hope that that comes. Um, I'm maybe a little bit less hard on them at the moment about it because of, um, you know, a little bit of uh, um, pandemic handicapping <laughs> on the scores. Hey, that that's great. Um, give them a little handicap on this one. But I, I think, you know, one thing that you said, you know, this was this was the easiest piece to get to, you know, the easiest piece, you know, it's 78 people. You know, I deal with 78 people, people's paperwork on a daily basis. So <laughs> um, I, I think one thing that I want to make sure that folks are aware of, too, when we're talking about commutations, a commutation does not take anything off your record. And Betty, please correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, it's not taking anything off your record. It doesn't mean that in some states that you will gain your right to vote back. Uh, it does not mean that you have the right to now uh, potentially carry a handgun. Uh, it does not mean that you can actually now volunteer in your child's school. So I think that it's important for folks to remember that while 78 people were, or excuse me, 75 were commuted, three were actually pardoned. A pardon will actually remove the entire um, charge from your record. Uh, that This is just you know, it really is the smallest step. You still, you still have to report this charge on a job application. 
Uh, and that's one of the things to me that that is most important to me is um, having situations where we're saying these folks wouldn't be in jail today uh, or, or their sentences would have been reduced today. And then the idea that we can't actually, once they have uh, put their time in, so to speak, um, that then they still have to continue to report this, um, it's that it impacts them going forward when it comes to things like housing and employment. I am curious from both of you. So the Cole memo, you know, the Cole memo was something that we all, um, you know, it was a lifeline to many cannabis businesses um, back in the early 2010s, I think. I think it first came, I think it was first, yeah. Jeremy's shaking his head, so I'm gonna trust him on that one. Um, you know, we all looked at it as a lifeline. It was, it was something that really, you know, from my perspective, it allowed us to go from doing things like preparing our staff for raid training and kind of move on to maybe preparing our staff for an IRS audit instead, right? <laughs> um, so do you, do, has the time for a coal like memo just simply passed at this point? Or would it create another level of comfort for folks? Look, I'm pretty trusting of Attorney General Merrick Garland at this point in time. I've been burned on this stuff before though. Um, but I mean, he has done what he said he was going to do since his confirmation hearing. Jeremy, what do you think of that? Do you think we need something like the coal memo? Look, I mean, my my personal point of view aside, right? I can I can tell you a little about what the businesses I talk to say, and they want some clarity, right? I think you you can only read so much into actions, um, but you know the federal government works by the letter of the law, and they do need some clarity. Now, the Cole Memo wasn't law; it was a directive about you know how the DOJ could use its revenue, proceeds, whatever money, you know, whatever term you want to use to describe money. So it, it, it wasn't necessarily a law, but it did dictate what they could regulate and could not enforce. Um, so I think a lot of the businesses I talked to, they really do want that. Now, what I think is even better is not a coal memo, but actual past laws uh, through the legislative branch that attack some of these issues. And now that may be something like the Safe Banking Act, um, which is, you know, gonna, you know, they're trying to pass that for the nth time, it remains to be seen whether that goes through, or it could look like, you know, outright legalization and descheduling. I think until we get to that point, nothing is safe and you can't take anything for granted. Now, that being said, it would be nice um, if something, you know, a Cole Memo 2.0 was released, or if Merrick Garland at least, you know, released some sort of um, dictation or some sort of strategy around how they're going to handle this. Like right now, it's a black box. And I think that, a lot of this enforcement can be left up to, you know, whichever prosecutor wakes up on the wrong side of the bed at a certain point and just decides to go after cannabis companies like we saw, you know, the former Attorney General Bill Barr do um, during all these industry uh, mergers and consolidations. You know, he really used that as a cudgel to attack them without the Cole memo finding what he could and couldn't do. He was free to do that. Um, so, again, wordy answer, but I think better than a Cole memo is a law past that really helps businesses do business. What are your thoughts on that, Betty? I'm sure that you've got an opinion. No, I mean, Jeremy's right. And I think that it, um, the access to business services um, at a reasonable at reasonable rates and without the need for excessive security or, um, you know, a, a additional measures taken because 
insurers and bankers and security services and all of these other ancillary businesses that cannabis companies rely on um, are are pricing into their services the federally illegal nature of cannabis, too. And this is obviously not my area of expertise, but I sure do remember a lot of complaints about this one um, uh, going around in the circles I, I used to hang out in more often. And there's a, you know, now that I am working in psychedelics and particularly in the pursuit of FDA approval for um MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, the different paths that the medical use of cannabis and the FDA-approved use of psychedelics are taking is such a fascinating um, area of... um, I'd be interested in the case study that talks about the different ways that these... um, you know, industries which are so commonly grouped together are developing because cannabis is happening outside of the research spectrum and through these state laws, whereas psychedelics are primarily moving forward through um, clinical trials and regulated activities. Um, I think that we're still losing out a lot around cannabis, even with the NIDA monopoly removed, even with, you know, more research being permitted for the medical use of cannabis. Listen, if I ever end up with an illness that requires the use of, you know, GMP cannabis at very specific doses um, with very specific terpenes and cannabinoid profiles, I sure do hope that by that time the research has caught up. Um, And I I think that it's going to be more challenging to make that happen um, until we have some real clarity around rescheduling cannabis. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right, Betty. Um, And I don't know about you guys' personal opinions on this. It's funny because I was just having a conversation with someone recently about um, how about laws being passed during lame duck portions of the legislative session. And I was actually really surprised. Um, a, A colleague actually shared with me some research that indicates that over the last few years, decade almost, that actually there's a lot more activity that seems to happen during lame duck. Um, lame duck period is usually that time like after, and, and Jeremy, you know this better than I do. It's that time after the August recess yeah. before the November elections. There's actually a little bit more activity that laws are being passed during that time at a rate that's a lot higher than what I actually had had anticipated seeing. So I think, you know, at first I was like, oh, as soon as we get to August, forget it, you know, we're done for the year. But that's not necessarily true that we could actually see some action uh, at, the, at the federal Senate or uh, our representative at the House of Representatives level um, during, during that time period. So I'm actually really excited about that. I mean, there's nothing better than kind of getting to the, to the end of your course and having to cram for the exam. I feel like that's kind of what happens during that, um, during that lame duck period. So keep up the good work to our Congress people and let's get these, you know, let's, let's get these things onto the floor. Um, you know, listeners are also, Oh, go ahead, Betty. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I don't, I also don't want to leave this conversation without saying that until we see some federal action um, around uh, descheduling or rescheduling, people are still going to be arrested. 
in prohibition states at the federal level, and the um, the arrest rates have not decreased uh, to the extent that we would hope. The clemency rates haven't increased, and all of these things, the the broad social change that we're pushing for. Um, and the broad criminal policy changes that we're looking for are um, are really going to be stuck for quite some time. And, you know, I think that we saw in California a very um, uh, salient example of how difficult it is to roll back some of the... Um, some of the harms that have been done to Code for America, you know, an enormous, uh, you know, data management project in order to f start to figure out who should and shouldn't be eligible for clemency petitions and exonerations of various types. So I think that the sooner we're working on that, the better. And that doesn't happen until the federal government acts and they need to do it soon. I agree with you 100% on that, Betty. And I also want to make sure that we don't forget that a lot of cannabis crimes are not happening at the federal level, or a lot of cannabis crimes are not charged at the federal level. They are charged at the state and local level. And none of the action that the president takes during uh, during making these um, clemency decisions have anything to do with the state and local. Um, so it is still imperative that we are getting out in front of our state and local lawmakers and making sure that they know how important it is for us as a whole, as a, as a community, as a whole, to take these similar kinds of actions when it comes to state and local. You know, one, one thing I really love now, my time in this space, you know, we weren't talking about this piece of the puzzle back in 2016. Um, you know, we were talking about opportunities, perhaps, but we weren't talking about as much about actually um, states actually going forward and doing like these these massive pardonings or these massive um, reducing, uh, removing, char uh, re removing crimes from records automatically, uh, expunging automatically. So it, that is something that I get really excited about. Um, but I would love to see some federal money going to the states to help them do this, because I think that would make a big difference as well. Awesome, well, I think that was a really good first segment. Um, we are gonna take a quick break. We're gonna turn things over to Shay with a word from this week's sponsor. We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com.
So this past week, I saw a report on Denver marijuana company Green Dragon, who was recently purchased by Ease. Um, And an example of what I would consider to be like how unionization efforts can actually create a PR challenge for a cannabis company. Um, Green Dragon is right now facing public allegations of unsafe working environment and low wages. And those um, allegations are coming from union officials. Uh, Green Dragon recently just voted to allow a union in and it's coming from some former employees. So like many aspects of this maturing industry, I can see unionization efforts kind of from two sides. I think that in some cases, or I think that in a lot of ways, unions coming to the industry and looking to organize our employees brings us a level of credibility and legitimacy that we hadn't seen prior. Um, But on the other side, I would also say that it does potentially create um, increases, or it doesn't potentially, it definitely will create increasing expenses, the cost of actually doing business, of producing and providing marijuana to patients and consumers. Um, I'm not sure at what point those two things kind of come together when, you know, we see a lot of reports on, you know, one of the things about cannabis is that many consumers have the opportunity and ability to turn back to the gray market. Uh, when they feel that prices are too high or to never come into the adult use market or the medical market due to pricing constraints. I'm lucky enough to live in a state where we actually have um, a a very robust market on the medical side, which has resulted in pretty significant price reductions for medical consumers. But I know that's not the case in other states. Um, When it comes to the unionization efforts, I wanna make sure that folks understand that from the way that I understand it is that last year, uh, the National Labor Relations Board actually ruled that marijuana cultivation companies like trimmers, sorters, packagers cannot unionize because they are considered to be, they're qualified as agricultural workers. However, some states, as we see with marijuana legalization, states have the right to pass laws that are specific to their state. And there are 10 states, I think now 11 with Colorado, who have actually said, no, we want agricultural workers to be able to unionize. So that's what's going on in Colorado right now is that we are seeing some of the cultivation side um, starting to to do some unionization activities. Um, I think that, you know, we just saw very well publicized unionization of Amazon workers. Uh, in Brooklyn and in your neck of the woods there, Jeremy, uh, this last month. I think what we're seeing is that union organizing in the marijuana industry has surged. Uh, I'm seeing reports of like 40,000 employees across the country are now unionized in our industry. Um, And one of the things that I find interesting is that more states are starting to mandate things like labor peace agreements for cannabis companies with their own employees which is, can be seen as a precursor to actually having unions come in. Uh, but also I'm noticing, like for example, in Connecticut, Connecticut has said that in their new adult use market, if you want to build a new facility, if you wanna build anything that's gonna cost $5 million or more, you have to do that with union workers. So you have to contract with a construction company that actually has union workers. 
Now, Jeremy, I'm quite curious about what it looks like in New York when it comes to unionization efforts. Yeah, no, I, I think you raised a really good point, Heather, earlier that, you know, this is one of those issues where cannabis isn't really unique, right? You have a lot of young people who are really energized about labor movements right now. I mean, it's happening in my industry. Um, you know, my company, Insider, just unionized. Lots of other media companies are unionizing. Um, and so, you know, like you said, Starbucks, Amazon, you know, big name brand companies. And so this, this movement is one of those issues where cannabis is sort of reflecting a broader national conversation. Um, in New York, obviously, the industry is a little behind where it is in other states, right? We don't have retail stores open, but we do have, you know, some companies do have footprints here in the medical market. It's relatively small, confined comparatively. So whether or not there's a lot of union activity happening here, I think it's something that we'll see in the near future. Um, I don't see a lot of it right now. That being said, you know, in states like Colorado and California, as you pointed out, I mean, these union movements are only getting bigger and bigger. Illinois is another state where it's getting more and more important when you have a lot of young, educated people coming into an industry, you know, you're going to see labor movements. Um, I think that's just sort of a sign of the times. Now, I think in the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Green Dragon case that you brought up, I mean, it, it sort of entered the mainstream or public consciousness for a couple of reasons. And one is because the company has just been not handling the situation well. I mean, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's an opinion to say that. I mean, they've fought tooth and nail every step of the way. There's a lot better ways to do it, um, to not point any fingers. And so that's one of the reasons. That's probably something that you may, hopefully we don't see from other cannabis companies, that hopefully, you know, there is voluntary recognition, or if not, that some of the things that the union or the workers who want to unionize are pushing for happen um, without a union. That's something that is also a possibility. I'm open-minded to it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, when you do have a lot of young, educated workers into kind of low-paid roles or roles that are lower skill, like you are going to see these union movements. So it's something that companies should absolutely get a handle on, figure out how they're going to approach the inevitable problem of their workers unionizing and do it in a way that can be good for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I've been paying a lot of attention to the labor peace agreements and like kind of how that process yeah. works. And and I find that to be fascinating. I'm, you know, in a lot of ways, we're on the front end of this, these efforts. Um, and, you know, I will say that Curaleaf itself has some retail or retail shops, retail dispensaries that have unionized as well. Um, so it's certainly something that we're looking at. I think that one of the things that we are really working hard on doing is making sure that we are paying a fair wage to all of our employees. And so we have had some efforts on that, um, on that side as well. So it, it's so interesting because I have always had, I can't, it's not a love-hate relationship with unions, but it's, I've always had this, you know, as a small child, I remember my dad telling me a story about how he never liked working for union shops because he was such a hard worker. And if you're a union worker, they don't want you to work very hard. Like that was kind of what his perspective was. I know. <laughs> Look, we got to love Papa Sullivan, right? <laughs> now, this was back in the 70s. You know, it was a little bit different then. And of course, my dad was a young, healthy, white male at that time. So, you know, and, in you know, in a trade, he was a welder, um, but he he was very skilled in his trade. So he, you know, con he continued to do like his, um, his continuing education, things like that to improve his skill sets. 
So I've always just had this kind of, then I think about like my own kind of more like social exposure to unions. I've never been part of a union. I've never worked for a company that I can think of that has even had a union. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so what I know most about unions is, is sadly like the 1980s movie starring Sally Fields, Norma Ray, which I just absolutely loved. And it was like, oh my God, go unions, right? <laughs> so I come at this, I just, I haven't kind of, for me personally, like pinpointed my own, I was actually when in preparing for this, I was kind of like going through and looking at pros and cons. Um, I'll be perfectly honest, I was having a hard time finding any cons of unionizing other than the fact that there's a, there's an impact to the, the bottom line, the cost yeah. of a product to consumers. Betty, I'm guessing you probably have some opinions on this topic. Do you want to share? <laughs> um, cost to consumers is a choice, Heather. Let's remember that. These are all business choices that people are making and they can choose to make their shareholders richer, or they can choose to provide cannabis at a reasonable rate and give people good working conditions and health care and a decent wage. These are all choices the businesses get to make. And the, um, you know, the, I, I am strongly pro-union, um, obviously. I don't think that anyone who's listened to a show that I've been on is going to wonder, hey, how does Betty think, feel about unions? Um, <laughs> the, but the, um, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is union or no, like every business is making a choice about how they want to run their shop. And young people in particular, to Jeremy's point, are um, increasingly more and more interested in giving their money to companies that are taking good care of their workers, concerned about the environment, giving back to their communities, and have a cap on uh, CEO and shareholder returns that reflects that sort of community investment. Those are the sorts of things that young people are looking for. Those are the sorts of things that those workers are looking for. And you're going to end up with, you know, a stronger loyalty base and a, a, a more dedicated employee base if you are paying attention to those things. Also, you're maybe not going to be destroying the planet at the same time. Like, there's a lot that can happen there, right? So very strongly pro-union. And I have just very little, very little sympathy for a company that has a union action taken in that sort of like, you know, um, controversial manner, right? Like if, if you've got people organizing for a union and you're trying to stop it and they manage to organize anyway, this might be a sign that you've got something wrong, right? And so I would agree entirely with Jeremy's uh, and everyone probably <laughs> assessment of like the poor handling of this from a, a public relations side from uh, and the like, instead, can we look at an opportunity to say, hey, we're learning some things and let's try to figure this out and let's have a conversation and see what we can do. You know, I mean, there's there are a thousand ways to handle a PR crisis. But, uh, you know, saying that all of your detractors are wrong is just not one of them. I think that is, that is an essential piece right there. Jeremy, you look like you want to say something. 
No, I, I just wanted to just quickly weigh in on what Betty said. Like, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think regardless of your opinion or perspective on unions, I just think that it's inevitable that a lot of large companies are going to want to unionize in industry. So figure out what the pain points are, like why people want to unionize in the first place. Maybe try and make some changes that might impact your bottom line a little bit, um, but help your workers. So either get ahead of the problem or study from what other industries have done that have made unions successful that have maybe impacted the bottom line a little less and kept workers happy. Like just get ahead of the problem, um, figure out why it's going to happen because it is coming. Um, and, you know, I, I get inbounds all the time that, you know, company X is starting a union movement or company Y is starting a union movement. We don't report on all of it, but if we did, you know, most companies that you all listeners have heard of, you know, would be subject to those conversations. So it's very widespread and it's coming. So I did want to ask you guys a question around this agricultural piece. So I didn't really look into the history of why agricultural workers do not, are not allowed to unionize from a federal perspective. Um, do you think that because in the cannabis space, we are talking about a heavily agricultural aspect, our cultivation, but then we also have a, a very, you know, manufacturing aspect in our product creation processing. And then we also have a retail aspect. So it, does the fact that in most states, cultivation workers can't unionize unless they're specifically allowed to, does that create some kind of inequality uh, within the industry where now we're going to see cultivation employees kind of against the unionization of their retail counterparts? I think it will have a, 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 an impact or maybe not so much. What do you think, Betty? I think that it will probably exacerbate inequities and inequalities between the, um, you know, those more, those jobs with more cachet and, and higher, you know, status in our minds and those jobs which are more stigmatized. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, I think it was Stephen Colbert a couple of years ago went to do farm work for a couple of days when there was a big immigration conversation going on about, you know, uh, immigrants stealing American jobs. And as it turns out, Americans won't do these jobs anyway. Right. There's a um, there is just so much stigma around agricultural work. So you get the breeders and the cultivators who have all of this, you know, um, celebrity around them and their work. Um, but the folks who are actually doing the hard labor day to day are um, largely invisible and even more invisible than the retail workers or others who um, who might be uh, more visible to the customer. And, and so it's easy to forget that those people exist and that they deserve worker protections and a fair wage and health insurance. And it's unfortunate. Um, and I, I think that it, we will see the same sort of stratification between like we see in food production, for example, and other agricultural activities where the folks who are doing the labor are forgotten. What do you think, Jeremy? You think that that Betty's got a point there on, on the unfortunate aspect? You know, I think sometimes I think I get a lot of feedback like, oh, it's so cool and interesting that you work in cannabis and oh, I'd love to just, you know, I'd love to move into that. And I think a lot of people sometimes don't realize 
that while, yeah, it's cool that we could come and do things like this podcast, that's really cool and interesting. But the reality of a lot of these jobs are just what Betty said. You know, these are agricultural jobs. These are production jobs and these are retail jobs, jobs that historically in the United States in particular have not risen to the level, you know, until we had COVID, we didn't consider any of these positions to be uh, particularly valued. I think during COVID, we started to get a better understanding of the value that we as consumers see from folks that are doing these jobs. But then again, I would also argue that it hasn't really resulted in any significant widespread change in our opinions. It's almost like we've kind of forgotten that now and we're back to, you know, why, why aren't there enough clerks in my grocery store? Um, I think we have the opportunity to kind of change this because people are so, um, think of cannabis as being like a sexier or a more interesting industry right now. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a really good question. I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. So it, <laughs> you know, it remains a really good question. I think, I think two things like number one is that, you know, the labor market will respond to the industry, right? So um, it's up to executives of these companies to hire appropriately, which, you know, avoids a lot of problems in the first place when you have to lay people off when the market's not doing so good or you're creating an oversupply. Um, on the second piece, um, you know, Heather, to your point, like, yeah, you know, cannabis is a sexy industry. It is interesting. There is media attention on it. So um, while this isn't, you know, a really well thought out opinion, I think you're absolutely right. There's a huge opportunity to just kind of like create correct, um, you know, the discrepancy between what is generally considered lower skill versus higher skill jobs. I think that's a huge opportunity that we have in cannabis, you know, at the same time, right? Like, I don't want to be delusional to say that, like, we're creating a whole new industry and it's going to correct all the wrongs of, you know, the rest of whatever other, you know, you, you pick your industry in America, right? Like I'm not delusional about it, but you know, I think there is a really good opportunity here. Um, and hopefully the press, you know, reporters like myself can get involved and kind of point out where companies are doing good and where companies are doing bad, uh, hopefully, you know, move it in or move it in a good direction. Ladies and gentlemen, it sounds like we have our own little Norma Ray right here. Go ahead, Betty. <laughs> so I just, I had to know the answer to this. I didn't actually know why agricultural workers can't unionize. Um, thanks to civileats.org, which I'm probably about to go learn a lot more about. <laughs> um, uh, I have just learned that um, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935 is what forbids agricultural workers from unionizing. And in 1935, the vast majority of agricultural workers were, hey, guess what? Black or brown. And so, of course, the labor protections are not included for those people. Capitalism doesn't work if there's if, without some form of slavery um, or, you know, some form of underclass who's working for this entire system. So. Uh, certainly not the way that we've constructed it. So big surprise. It's got racist, uh, you know, history, and it is based in marginalization of people based on the color of their skin or where they're coming from. And that continues to this day because you go into any major grow anywhere where there's a significant Latino population, and you're going to see, for the most part, the people who are working in that grow are the same agricultural workers you might see in any other agricultural space. So 
um, hey, let's end that that uh, little bit of racism. No, sorry, not a little bit. I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I'm just saying, like, there are lots and lots of different ways that we can start to attack racism endemic in our society and endemic in these laws. And one of the things that we could do, perhaps as an industry, if we decided to really care about this, is change that dynamic for our industry and, and maybe even inspire one or two others to do the same. I love it. Betty with the, with putting the hammer down at, or excuse me, putting the like shovel down on it. <laughs> Once again, Betty, you know, every day, and I say this all the time, every time I leave a conversation with Betty, I'm like charged up about doing better, myself doing better, the companies that I work for and work with doing better. So I have to just really appreciate you, Betty, because you do that for me on the regular basis. Well, if you need something torn apart, Heather, you just bring it to me and I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you all the reasons it's wrong. <laughs> all right. So I think that that we will wrap up our discussion about unions. I have a suspicion that this will be something that we will continue to talk about here at Marijuana Today as things continue to move forward in this world. Um, but I... I agree. I, I kind of like the idea. You know, my home state is on this list here where agricultural workers can unionize. Um, I don't see a ton of union activity here in Maine. Um, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into all this. I'm going to get a little more knowledgeable about this for myself. So we are going to turn things over to Shay. And our regular listeners are usually expecting us to go into a third segment. But this week, we were a little bit short on time. And I, frankly, just got a little bit lazy. Uh, too much indica, maybe. Uh, and so we are going to do just these two sessions this week. Uh, and we're going to follow up with just a quick uh, round of finishing moves. We're glad to be supported this week by our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine. Perhaps best known around our state as the medical dispensary where you can also fill your car up with gas. The folks behind the Atlantic Farms have a strong ethic of taking care of their customers, which is reflected in the high quality products they sell for hugely affordable prices. If you're lucky enough to find yourself up here in Maine, you need to swing by and check out their shop if you have not yet. You can find out more about where to find the Atlantic Farms over at theatlanticfarms.com. That's theatlanticfarms.com. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves are the part of the shows when our guests and hosts can talk about anything they'd like. So, Jeremy, what do you got for us? Lay your finishing move on us. So, 
and again, I'm, I'm going to caveat this with I haven't, I haven't written out my script, which I usually do for finishing moves. So my thoughts are more cogent, but, um, you know, this is an issue that comes up a lot in my reporting and reporting on the cannabis industry. Um, I'm thinking about one particular story that we put out last week or two weeks ago now. Um, when you are a company, you can't, you, you, you can't approach reporters with the baseline expectation that all coverage is going to be positive, right? Um, I think there is, there is an issue in the cannabis industry, and, and maybe it's how I conduct myself, where um, you know, companies expect you to be supportive of them. That is not the role of the press. That is the role of public relations. The role of the press is to find the truth. And sometimes the truth is positive. Sometimes it's negative, right? It's not personal. It just means that there is a problem. And if it's elevated to the press, to myself or any of my colleagues, then that means it's not only us who thinks it's a problem, it's people within your organization. So if I am a company, instead of getting angry at reporters doing their work, I would use it as an opportunity to be introspective, right? Um, you know, be kind, be excellent. Don't try to gaslight reporters. Don't try to ascribe poor motivations to them. Just say, hey, this is a problem. Here we can fix it. That being said, you know, I don't want to say that all reporters are angels because some reporters are deliberately digging for bad information. And that's, you know, that's their prerogative or the problem, however you want to put it. But I would say, let's keep the relationship a two-way street, right? We can always help each other. Um, don't get angry, right? Like it's, it doesn't help anyone. Just be logical. Um, let's work through this together. If there's a problem and we're highlighting it, it means it's also probably within your power to fix it. That's my finishing move. <laughs> I love that, Jeremy. And I'll tell you, I'm feeling like maybe an episode where we have somebody like you from the media and somebody like Betty from the PR side. Oh, and I don't know, maybe somebody, well, somebody smarter than me from a, from a large MSO <laughs> operator. And we'll have a good, real honest conversation about this topic. I think that could be really, really helpful. And frankly, personally fascinating. Yeah. So, no, I mean, well, I was just gonna say at the end of the day, um, it becomes very quickly apparent when you deal with people, um, you know, who are the effective communications people and who are the ineffective ones. Um, and that goes a long way in building credibility is all I will say. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm so Perfect. Fine. Perfect. <laughs> well, I'm going to turn it over now to the most effective PR person I know, Betty Aldworth, for her finishing move. I have so much to say on this topic, Jeremy, and I want to... You know, when we're bootstrapping these businesses and like getting them off the ground and like doing our best to deal with what matters, like so many people overlook the importance of a strategic, comprehensive and ethical communications policy and don't think about what does it really take to get our vision out there, right? And this is something that, you know, I, I think investing early in talent, um, you know, where in a team that, that has a ton of talent um, and lots of really good foundations in community education and ethics um, is really important. But so just echoing all of the yes to that, I um, had not prepared a finishing move today because 
I'm in PR and it's a real busy couple of weeks. <laughs> but um, I did, during that conversation about unions, come across this uh, website called civileats.com, C-I-V-I-L, eats, E-A-T-S. And I just, um, you know, if you're interested in this conversation about unions and agriculture and the rest of it, I would really recommend that folks take a look at this. They describe themselves as a daily news source for critical thought about the American food system. There's going to be an awful lot of overlap for MSOs and cultivation companies as they think about how they address the issues that are affecting um, cultivation sites and, and the agriculture overlap. Um with cannabis. And I think it would be really terrific if more people were paying attention to these things. Um, it's a nonprofit news organization. Uh, they were named the James Beard Publication of the Year, um, inducted into the Library of Congress. And uh, on a quick skim, they just look terrific. So um, that's my finishing move today based on the show. And I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I got my Library of Congress library card. It was a, so I'm on the board of directors of my small local library anyway. I cannot tell you how much of a highlight it was to me. The I can only liken it to the, my first, um, my first marijuana employee badge and the giant smile that was on my face when I took that badge picture. Like my Library of Congress library card holds this like place of honor now in my wallet. It's such a funny thing. I'm so excited. So anytime now anyone mentions Library of Congress, I'm all in. <laughs> so, Hard goals. <laughs> so ridiculous, right? And my poor, my poor middle schooler who was so generous and kind to me during Archer. So this is our first trip to Washington, D.C. And he was so sweet to me and really allowed me to nerd out on some of the things that I get really excited about. Um, we did have a, a small impasse moment where he, uh, so the uh, Smithsonian Museum of American History has currently has a, a big um, section right now about girlhood, about being a woman, about being a girl. And, you know, this middle schooler who's just, I was trying to explain to him, like, this is a way for you to, like, understand those crazy, you know, weird 50% of the population that are female or that can, you know, that, that identify as female. This is an opportunity for you to understand where they came from. And he was like, you know what, mom, I'm just going to sit right here at the beginning. He's like, let me take your picture. He was, he was great. He's like, let me take your picture in front of the big signs, but I'm just going to hang out here and I'm going to let you go and enjoy yourself in the, it's tough to be a girl, uh, section. So I couldn't get him moving along on that. Um, but he was so good at doing the things like going to the Library of Congress and letting me get my library card and taking selfies in front of the Supreme Court. So I did have a different finishing move for today, but I think on this one, I'm just gonna appreciate my 13 year old. Thank you, Jack, for being such a fantastic traveler with your dear old mom. And next time I promise we'll go someplace that's a little more fun for you. So that's the end of our show today, folks. I'd like to thank Shay Gunther, our producer, um, for making us all sound just so fantastic and having a little patience with me this week while we had a couple of delays in getting the show done. So Shay might be working a little bit late tonight to get the show up for you guys. 
I'd like to thank Overclock Remix for the tunes that make the ins and outs of this show just flow so nicely. And I want to just ask people if they would uh, get on whatever podcast service they use, rate and review us. Let other people know where to find us. That's it for me this week. I hope everyone out there has had a lovely marijuana today and has a wonderful marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take. <laughs>